This week I was uh, reading a report that was submitted to the Senate subcommittee on the charitable sector, uh, submitted by the Canadian Council of Christian Charities. I don't usually sit around reading reports that are given to Senate subcommittees. It's not something that I do. But this one in particular was different. It was important. Uh, The basic gist of the report was that the Canadian Council of Christian Charities, along with many other groups, was writing to try and convince the government that it still matters to have uh, religious groups in Canada. There are more and more in our country today who would say that if all that you do is teach the Bible and tell people about Jesus, then you really shouldn't be granted charitable status. You shouldn't be able to issue tax receipts. You, you shouldn't have that. And so the, the, the goal of this report and the debate that is surrounding it is whether advancing religion should be a valid basis for having uh, the status in Canada of a, uh, a nonprofit organization. It's not just happening in Canada. It's happening many places around the world today. And interestingly, what has come out of this is that there's a lot of research being done to uh, understand what the impact of churches and other religious groups are having in our world today. So, for instance, did you know that if somebody attends church, uh, if, uh, in fact, if somebody uh, attends church more than uh, once or more uh, a week, it will increase their life expectancy by seven years. Is that crazy? Uh, Another study showed that uh, religious participation by children has been shown to result in lower juvenile delinquency, less drug use, less smoking, better school attendance, and a higher probability of graduating from high school. Just from doing what we're talking about doing. Also, adults who are regular religious attendees commit fewer crimes, give more money to charity, and do more good and volunteer activity in their communities than non-attenders. One of the most famous studies that's been done in Canada recently is something called the halo effect. And what they have done is they've gone and they've measured the financial impact that a church has in a community. And what the studies have shown is that the both direct and indirect financial impact or economic impact of a church in a community is four and a half times its annual budget. And so what they're saying by all of these studies and what they're trying to accomplish through this report is to say that uh, even, even for people who don't want anything to do religion, anything to do with religion or faith in Jesus Christ, there is great benefit and they should be glad that there are some of us who still do because it is having a positive impact on our community and on our society. So it was an interesting report. There was something that was very surprising to me, however. At a number of points during the report, they had to make a distinction between people who attend church. They had to make a distinction between uh, two categories of people that they referred to as the very committed and the less committed. And they actually used those as technical terms. And I'm thinking, 
hey, you're writing a report to some politicians in Ottawa. Why are you going into describing levels of commitment in churches? Why would they even go in? Like, why bring that up? And what came out was they had to bring that up because the statistics and the research don't make sense unless you break down those two categories. Because what they, said, what they found was, and I'm going to quote them here, the less committed, and again, this is a technical term they're using here, the less committed are much more like the non-religious in behavior than they are like the very committed. Hear what they're saying? That among the, we were talking about the positive impact among those who attend church, but you need to know and understand, Mr. Politician in Ottawa, that when we say that, that there is a distinction. That uh, if you are very committed, then there's going to be this profound impact that, that you are making on our world and our society today. But in fact, those people that we talked about who are attending our services and doing these different things, if they are in the what we call the less committed group, they're in fact acting more like the people that have nothing to do with the church than they are with this other group that we're referring to as the very committed. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting that they would have to explain that to politicians in Ottawa in order to understand what is happening in our society and the impact that religious groups are having in our world today. I think it's important for us to be aware of some of these movements and some of this, uh, the things that are happening in our society. And, and so I mentioned the report, but it's actually directly related to our passage today. Because we've been in a series called The God Who's Worthy of Our Best. And we've been walking through the book of Malachi and today we come to the end, and there's a question that's been pressing on people uh, in this particular passage. And the question that they're asking is, 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 is trusting in God worth it? Does it matter? Is it worth anything? Is there any value in still believing anymore? That they're, they're asking in Malachi's day the question that, many in our society are asking today. Not surprisingly, God's answer is, yes, it does matter. And we'll get into how he describes in the, the way that it matters. But when he describes how it matters, he breaks it down. And he will describe and point to two different groups of people, both of whom are religious, both of him, whom have some connection to the God of the scriptures, but two groups of people that look a lot like the two groups that the Canadian, Christian, uh, Canadian Council of Christian Charities referred to as the very, the, the very committed and the less committed. So anyway, that's all background. We're going to see what God's word has to say for us this morning. If you have your Bible this morning, I want to encourage you to turn with me to Malachi chapter 3, verse 13. Uh, if you uh, want to use the Pew Bibles in front of you, they're, we're on page 754. encourage you to follow along with me and keep it in front of you as we walk through it. Uh, I'll, I'll begin reading from Malachi 3:13. "Your words have been hard against me," says the Lord. But you say, "How have we spoken against you? You have said, "It's vain to serve God." What's the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now, 
we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is the word of God. Now, the first thing this passage teaches us is, and it starts with those, what the council called the, the less committed, uh, what I'll call the almost believers. Almost believers don't see enough profit in God to commit themselves. People on the fringe of truth and the fringe of true faith in Christ are asking the same questions that non-religious Canadians are asking. What's the point? Does it matter? Is there really any point to it all? Almost believers don't see the prophet, enough prophet to commit themselves. Now God introduces their words, and I want you to see them in verse 14. You get a sense of what they're thinking and how they see their world. They've been saying there in verse 14, it is vain to serve God. They don't think it's worth it. They don't think that there is a point to making the, uh, the, the, the efforts that they've been making. There's not enough return for their time and effort. And they're saying, why bother anymore? Why should we be doing this? They go on to say, what is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? They, they choose, and this word profit deliberately, it is an unflattering word. It is a word that speaks to how they see God and how they see their faith. They wanted a paycheck from God. We've seen already in this series that they've been bringing God uh, diseased and blind and animals with broken bones, and they've, they've been giving God worship leftovers, giving God the, the bare minimum and unacceptable, in many ways, uh, sacrifices, but they were still doing something. And at this point, they're a little annoyed with God that although he's, they're doing something for him, they don't feel they're getting enough back. They don't see enough profit. There's not enough return on investment. And they're expressing their frustration with him. They're thinking that because they've done something, God should 
could respond. They should have financial prosperity. They should have lead healthy lives, sunny skies, good circumstances. That's what God should do. Almost believers want to get paid for their little acts of virtue. And it gives us an insight into how they think. Almost believers also envy those who reject faith. Verse 15 continues to quote these almost believers. It says, And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evil doers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. What, what they're doing here is they're looking at these people who reject faith and they're saying, boy, those guys are really blessed. That's, that's really how to, how to live. Like they get to sleep in on Sunday morning and not feel guilty. It's like that's the way to live. They, they, they don't have to serve, they don't have to read their Bibles, and they don't have to have any pangs of guilt about it. They can ignore God, cut him out of their lives, and go about their business, and he doesn't do anything about it. And they're thinking, That's, that is blessing. That's the kind of life I want. And I, I think we need to pause because those are exactly the kinds of words that are being brought and, and debated in Ottawa today, surely those are the kinds of words that are being whispered and felt in living rooms across our country. And we need to pause and say, has any of that, cre- that thinking crept into your own heart? Is there anything in your own heart that is saying, I don't know if it's worth it. I don't know if God's really that important. Whether there's re- really any use to it. I don't know if there's enough profit enough return. I don't know if I should bother to make those steps of trust and commitment. Are you asking any of those questions in your heart? Has life in a world that doesn't see the point of faith made you question your own faith and the value of making the changes that you feel God calling you to make? I think we need to hear how personally God takes these words, how he feels about them, because he tells us how he feels about them in the verse. In verse 13, God says, your words have been hard against me. The word for hard here doesn't mean hard to understand. It's not like, boy, I can't quite figure out what they're saying. What do they mean by that? No, it doesn't mean hard to understand. It means hard to take. Those words are severe to me. The word can be translated grievous. They, they, they pain the heart of God to see people whom he has blessed look at him and say, there's not really any point to this. God's not really worth it. Those, those words are, are, he's not just sitting hearing a philosophical debate by some people that are just venting. He hears those words and they are personal. They They are rightly felt by him as an attack on his goodness, his character, and on his love. And he says, those words are hard to me. They're hard to hear. They hurt. It's personal. Now, I've been using the term almost believers through this, and it is a technical term that I'm using, but I haven't defined the term uh, or explained really what I'm talking about. I think that almost believers are a little bit like what the Council of, Canadian Council of Christian Charities refer to as the less committed. Maybe theirs is a more gracious term. They're people who attend church, but they're not all in. 
they, they get close enough to, to, to see what real faith is, but not so close that they are willing to themselves commit to that true faith. They're the kind of people whom Jesus addresses in the church of Laodicea. He says in Revelations 3.15 and 16, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now those are hard words. The, the lukewarm, here, lukewarm people here are what I'm calling almost believers. There's a connection to Christianity, but no commitment to it. There's a, a sense of interest in religion, but without a clear difference from the world. The, there is a, a proximity to, to true faith, but without the transformation of it, without the personal engagement, the willingness to say, I'm all in. This is for me. So, those are the kind of people that existed in Malachi's day. And from what I'm reading, those are the kind of people that exist in our day. And we need to examine ourselves to say, is that me? Am, am I the person who is sitting on the fringe, getting close, hoping that just by being close enough, somehow blessings will flow into my life, but not really willing to lean in, to give myself and commitment to this God who calls me. It's important to look, when we look at Jesus' words here, to remember he's not being unpleasant or mean here. These are, it's an, actually a gracious statement that Jesus is, is going to spit them out because what he's doing is saying, these people, by thinking that they're close enough to, to real faith in, in, in Jesus Christ, that they're okay and they're right with God. And that's a very dangerous position to be in because they're not okay. They're not right with God. And by spitting them out, he's forcing them to make a decision, to choose sides, to make clear what has been vague and unclear. So almost believers don't see enough profit in God to commit themselves. True believers, though, are different. True believers draw a line in the sand for the God that they love. They make their loyalty clear. They make their commitment clear. There is a difference from the world. They draw, in the, they draw a line in the sand for the God they love. Now we looked at verses 14 and 15. We've seen the people complaining about God, complaining about who he is and what he's doing. And they've been just not feeling like faith is worth it. They've not felt like God is worth it. Not, not worth it enough, at least, to make the kinds of changes in their lives that they feel he's calling them to make. But not everybody in Israel felt like that. There were others in Israel that, that saw the response of the people, and they were shaken up by it, frankly. They were moved and troubled. The people's words grieved them. Verse 16 introduces them. It says, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. What they're doing here is they've heard the, the, the complaints of the people and they're troubled by those words. And now they're gathering together, they're coming together and saying, we need to do something about this. This is putting our entire uh, community of faith in great danger 
to, to mock God and to, to suggest that God is uh, of so little worth and value is to stand under his judgment. And, and so they, they begin to, to, to consult together and say, what are we going to do? How are we going to respond? How are we going to act? You see, people here in verse 16 that are sharing God's pain over their words, God's outrage over their words. They realize something has to be done. It reminds me of Proverbs 8.13 where it says, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. If you love someone, then you are grieved by the things that grieve that one that you love. If you care for someone, then you feel the pain of the things that pain that one that you care for. And so when we see and hear evil in our world today and we recognize that those are hard words, those are hard things to the God that we love, then it rightly stirs us up, rightly grieves us. And we, we, we come together and we say, what do we, we need to do something. We need to respond. What? What will be our response to these things? Well, as they come together, they talk and they come up with a plan. And the plan is given in verse 16. It says, A book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed a name. What's happening here is they're signing their names to a manifesto. They recognize how the how the world is, is responding. They're recognizing how almost believers are responding and they're recognizing how that has grieved and pained God and they're saying, we need to stand apart and do something different. We will express to God that we aren't going in that direction. We're, we're on his side. They want to make their allegiance clear. They want to make their loyalty clear to him. They want to draw a line in the sand and say, that's not us. We're with you, God. We're on your side. And and so they draw up a book of remembrance. It would would have been very natural to them because they knew that God was their king. And in their day, what kings do is they made records. They kept chronicles. Uh, If you were here when we were walking through the book of, of Esther, uh, you remember Xerxes is in the middle of the night, he can't sleep, and he says, hey, bring, bring me that, that book of Chronicles. And, and, it, and he walked through all of the different things that had happened during his reign, and he found, oh, there's, there's the, the act of that loyal citizen. I never repaid him. I never rewarded him. And he responded. Something like that is happening here. They say, our king is worthy of loyal citizens, and we know there's an uprising in the land. So we are going to sign our names as a book of remembrance and saying, we're on your side, side, God. We're going to draw a line in the sand, make our allegiance clear. Notice how it describes them. In verse 16, it calls them those who feared the Lord. Then it calls them those who esteemed his name. Notice how different that is than the almost believers that we met earlier. The almost believers, they had small thoughts about God. Their thoughts, about, thoughts toward God were just what they could get from him. Their thoughts toward God were 
bribing him with a bit, little bit of religious duty to get him to fix the circumstances in their lives. That, that was kind of the extent of their thoughts and considerations of God. The, the true believers here are different. True believers revere God for who he is. They esteem him. They respect him. They love him. They value him. But again, not just for what they can get from him, they esteem him for who he is, for his character and his greatness, his glory. They're motivated by the worth of God himself. I wonder if you've come to see God that way. Do you see God for who he is, not just for what you can get? See, the worth of God, the glory of God, the weightiness of God, a God who in and of himself, before he does anything, deserves our complete loyalty and allegiance. Is that how you see God? If it is, have you begun to be grieved over the things that grieve his heart? Because that's an expression of our love, right? Do you feel pained over the things that pain God's heart? Does sin not only become something that you're going to try not to do, as, at least when it's not convenient, but it's something that grieves you because it grieves him? Are you all in for God? Have you drawn a line in the sand that expresses your commitment, your loyalty? your allegiance. If you have, God wants you to be very clear that he notices and it does make a difference. God draws a line in the sand around those who draw a line in the sand for him. God promises his best to those who give him their best. Faith matters to those for whom faith matters. God draws a line in the sand around those who draw a line in the sand for him. Let's look back at verse 16, at those believers who decided to sign the manifesto, communicate their faith and loyalty to, to, to their God. The people around them were saying, hey, there's no point in that. There's no, there's no worth, there's no profit in serving God anymore. He doesn't seem to care anyway. But what does verse 16 say? The Lord paid attention and heard them. It mattered. It seemed like a small thing. They're just, they're just signing their names. They're just filling, filling in a book. What, what, what big deal is that? It was a big deal to God. A, a big deal to God, so big that he would stop what he was doing, that he would give his attention to some believers in Israel and say, that's what I'm talking about. That's where my heart is. That is what gives me joy and pleasure. It wasn't a small thing to God. The creator of the universe paid attention. And you need to know that those steps of devotion that you take, those times where you are faced with a decision, do I follow God even though it costs me something here, or do I just kind of stay on the fringe and walk around it? You need to know that when you choose to count the cost, follow him in obedience, trust him with that step in your life, it matters to him. He notices. He cares. It moves his heart. That was what helped David to cope. David had those long years where he knew that he had been anointed by God. He knew that God was leading him 
to serve as king, and yet he was being hunted down. He was being hunted and chased by King Saul. And if you were to look at David's life at at those times, you would say, what's the point, David? Why bother? It doesn't seem like you're really coming out on top with your circumstances, man. Like, this is not doing much for you. And although he couldn't point to his circumstances and the, the, the great hope that those circumstances gave, them, gave him, he could point to God and the fact that God noticed and God cared, and that made a difference to him. He says in Psalm 56, verse 8, praying to God, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? What kind of God counts the restless turnings of someone who has given themselves to him and endured pain as a result. What kind of God does that? That it matters that an individual, that one person who is enduring a sleepless night out of devotion to, to him, what kind of God notices that, counts that, records it, says that's important to me? What kind of God pauses to collect the tears of his people in a bottle? Collect them because they are important to him. Collect them because they are precious to him, valuable to him. What kind of God does that? We've been talking up until this point about people who are writing their name in a little book for God and saying, hey God, we're on your side. We're still committed to the covenant. We're all in for you. Here. God's the one writing the book. Here, God's the one that's making the record. He's making a record of those tears that have been spent for him. He's making a record of those sleepless nights and the pain that people have endured out of devotion to him. He writes down the names. The actions matter. He stops, he notices, he cares. Sometimes that's all we've got, right? You're looking at the circumstances and those, you're not really getting the warm fuzzy from what's going on. But you know that there's a God who cares, who holds on to that pain that you, and it matters to him. It moves him. And it should move us. The thing is, it doesn't just matter to God. God promises here that there's one, one day coming when it won't just be something that he notices, but that the whole world will be made aware of. There's coming a time when we will not need to be writing reports to Senate, Senate subcommittees anymore explaining that, that faith in Christ matters, that our devotion and our belief in him matters because it'll be made painly, painfully clear. In verse 18, he says, Then once more, referring to this coming day, once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. People will see then. That day will make it clear then that it did matter, that he did notice, he did care. And it made a profound difference in his response. People will see how faith in God matters. Now, God shows he notices our steps of devotion in a couple of ways. The first is in his love. In responding to those who recorded their names in the book of remembrance, notice what it says in verse 17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. I 
identify with them. They're my kind of people. I accept them. I receive them. We are family. They're on my side. They are under my wings and under my shelter and protection. They're my people. Then he continues in verse 17. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, he sets his love on those who fear him. He counts as treasured those who esteem him. When you think about it, if you are an infinitely powerful God, you can speak the world, speak the universe into existence. What do you need? What, what could make you feel special? What, what could be important to you? What could you get that could give you joy? Like, you know, are you going to get an espresso machine? Is it going to be a new, you know, you run through your mind through the kinds of things that we get excited about. Like, that's not going to do it for God. That's not going to be special. Not going to be important. Really not going to make much difference. He said, you know those people who signed that book? You know the people in the midst of a culture that was saying faith in God really doesn't matter? Those people that got worked up inside and said, no, it does matter. We're all in for him. We're going to be on his side and we're going to draw a line in the sand for him. God says, those people matter to me. That's my special treasured possession. That's what I value. That's something that stirs my heart moves me. He goes on to speak of of them in verse 2. He gives promises to those who fear his name. And he says, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. He pictures a coming savior who will be like a son, not, not a, like a father to a son. That's a different image. Here it is the sun in the sky that shines brightly. And he says that coming Savior will be like that kind of sun. A sun because it shines brightly to those who are weighed down in darkness. A sun whose rays don't just shine light, they shine righteousness. They, they, they bring righteousness upon those that they fall. A son whose rays bring healing and relief to those who are waiting on him. And he says that when that that day dawns, when that Savior comes, he will be light. He will bring joy. He describes some calves waiting in a stall. They're waiting because they've been kept in that stall all night and it's been cold and it's been dark. And he says, dawn is coming, the sun will rise, and those calves will be led out of their stalls and they will dance and they will leap and they will express the joy and the exuberance of that day having finally arrived. That is the promise that he holds out to all who draw a line in the sand for him, who say, I'm for him in a world that is against him. He makes those promises to us. God draws a line in the line in the sand around those who draw a line in the sand for him. He does that through his love. He does that through his salvation. This passage speaks, if you walk slowly through it, it speaks of terrible judgment, terrible words of, of, of terror, honestly. It, it is the quintessential fire and brimstone sermon. In verse 1, it describes judgment 
burning like an oven. And he uses that word oven because it is the hottest thing that people in Israel at that time had ever known. it's, It's something that you don't want to ever get close to. He said, it'll be like that. In verse 1, it it talks of the arrogant being like stubble that are set ablaze. He deliberately uses that word arrogant because we remember, yeah, wait a second, at the beginning of this passage, there were those people who were arrogantly speaking about God like he just was a small thing to be trifled with. Those people that we call the almost believers Small thoughts of God, big thoughts of themselves. He says they will be the one. They will be the, the the ones who will experience the pain of that fire, the pain of that oven. He says in verse seventeen, though, of those who drew a line in the sand, it will be different. That day will be different. He says, "I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him." It's a certain promise of pardon from the judgment to come, relief from the wrath to be unleashed. It's it's given to those, however, who signed that book, who said, he matters enough for me to make my loyalty clear to him. It's promised to those who drew a line in the sand. Now, the book of Malachi ends with a promise. It ends with the promise that there is another prophet coming. In verse 5, he promises to send Elijah the prophet, whom Jesus, uh, we saw in an earlier message, identified as John the Baptist. I think the question we need to ask is, why end the book with the promise of another prophet? Malachi had already come. Malachi was kind of God's messenger. Malachi had already warned them. He'd already given promises. He'd already spoke of what was to come. Why didn't just God come? Why promise another prophet? Why send someone else? Why end the book like that? As importantly, why end the entire Old Testament like that? Saying, I'm going to send another prophet. You know why you send another prophet? When you've already given them the warnings, already given them the promises, already told them how much is at stake. You know why you send another prophet? You only send another prophet because you are a patient, gracious God who wants one more name in the book. You only send another prophet because you want to give one more chance, one more opportunity for one more to give themselves to him and to be spared from that judgment that is too terrible for even God to consider. It's a, it, it ends with this message of the patient grace of God continuing to to send another, continuing to hold out hope that one more might write their name in that book. John the Baptist came, and he came in direct fulfillment of verse 5 and that promise to send another in preparation for the coming of the day of the Lord. Interestingly, John the Baptist didn't show up with a book or pen. He didn't pull out a scroll and say, hey guys, you know that thing that we were doing in Malachi? You should write your name down here. He didn't do that. He said two things. Repent and be baptized. That's the way you draw a line in the sand. That's the way that you say to God, I'm all in, in a world that has 
put their heart against him. That's the way that you communicate to God today that he's important. He is of value. He is worth it. Worth the difficult steps that would be involved in responding to him. He said, repent and be baptized. Baptism is a declaration of your loyalty. It's a statement that says, I'm all in. I'm on his side in a world that has put themselves clearly in opposition to him. Another way you, you, you do that is through church membership. Church membership is another line in the sand where you say, I'm in, I want to be counted. I don't want to sit on the outside. I don't want to keep my distance anymore. I want to give myself to this body of believers. I want to, I want to be counted. I don't want to be a spectator. Maybe there are other areas where you need to draw a line in the sand as well. Other areas that the book of Malachi and our series has already addressed. Maybe you need to draw a line in the sand in this whole area of worship leftovers. Clearly saying, enough is enough. Given God just whatever is left after I'm, after I'm worn out. No, I'm, I'm going to start to give God my best. Maybe you need to draw a line in the sand in this whole area of personal purity we addressed. Maybe you need to draw a line in the sand in your approach to marriage, your vows, and, or your lack of vows, what, whatever, whatever God has laid your, on your heart in this whole area of marriage and what we, we looked at earlier in the series. Maybe you still need to draw a line in the sand with your finances. The call that we receive is to repent, to respond to a God who cares for our heart. He notices every step that we make in response to him. And we make those steps because he's worthy of them. Because he is a God who is faithful and patient and he keeps giving us another chance. But we know that those chances don't keep being made forever. So we respond to him with a sense of urgency, a a sense of gratefulness, a sense of love, and ultimately a sense of devotion. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we can get confused living in a world that thinks so little of you. But we declare you are worthy. You're worthy of our reverence and esteem. You're worthy of our commitment. So give us courage to take steps of trust and devotion. And remember us as we do. Because we need your help. We ask for your strength. You're worthy of our best. In Jesus' name, amen.